For many, Christmas brings back memories from childhood. When I was a little boy, my father and I would put up a reindeer shed about a week or so before Christmas. Now, mind you, I grew up on Long Island, New York. I mean, there you go. Now, typical Swede, my father insisted on everything being perfect. No nails, no screws, everything had to be jointed in properly. And on Christmas Eve night, my father would wake me up every few hours to go outside and make sure that the buckets of water that we put out for the reindeer didn't freeze over. And if they did, my job was to take an ax, break off all the ice, scoop the ice off, and then refill all the water buckets. Today, that would be called child abuse. <laughs> I remember how the inside of our house was decorated with all kinds of fresh evergreens that my father and my mother just loved to make all these creative things out of. And typical of Swedes, candles everywhere, most especially in windows. And these were the days when candles were real candles, not these electric flame dancing things. Now my family was steeped in Scandinavian traditions, some of which I still keep, although I confess I no longer provide water for reindeer. I even put out my Yulebach, which draws some very puzzled looks from those who come into the rectory because it's the first thing you see. I, I, it's hard to explain what a Yulebach is. My grandfather used to make them. Um, it is a straw goat with huge curved horn wrapped around the body in red ribbon around the legs and often has a red ribbon tied on its tail. Now today the tradition holds that the Yulebach or the Christmas goat should be placed near the front door to ward off evil. Uh, the truth, however, is far more bizarre. It is really a nod to the ancient god Thor, who was drawn across the sky in a chariot by two goats. Uh, one was named Tangrisner, uh, Norse meaning snarler, and Tanjoster, which means teeth grinder. And when I try to explain this to people, they just get more and more confused. And I usually get them say, hey, it's a Swedish thing, okay? If you think that's weird, wait till I tell you about the Easter witch. But I find comfort in these traditions. My parents and my grandparents, all my aunts and uncles, have all passed away now. But in these traditions, they become very much alive in my thoughts. And I'm compelled to remember I come from a long line. And I'm grateful for what was handed down to me and for all that I've experienced. Many of our Western Christian traditions emerged from the ancient mists of Norse mythology and were wisely adopted and adapted by the church. Uh, for example, how many here have a decorated tree in your home, real or artificial? Okay. How many here have hung up evergreen boughs, real or artificial, inside your house? How many have a wreath hanging on the front door of your home? Okay. How many have hung up mistletoe over a doorway? If you ever have. Now, okay, now this is not so common in this country. Has anyone here last summer cut down firewood and reserved a log for your Christmas fire? <laughs> 
A few people did last night. Now, how many are planning to have a ham at your Christmas feast? Congratulations, you are all Vikings. <laughs> and we're cousins. <laughs> to this day, in Icelandic, Swedish, Norwegian, Danish, there are no words for Merry Christmas or referring to the birth of the Christ child as we find in the, ro the Romance language, like French and Spanish or Italian. Instead, the common greeting that I grew up with and is still used throughout Scandinavia is the ancient pagan one, Good Yule, referring to the Norse celebration of the midwinter solstice where family and friends huddled together in their evergreen decorated homes worn by the Yule log in the harsh winter night feasting on the Yule Ham, trusting that the gods would give them strength to survive till the spring. When Christianity came to Scandinavia in the 10th and 11th centuries, the church took the best of the pagan traditions of Yule and gave them new interpretations. Now why? The church understood an essential message of the pagan celebration of Yule, hope. Hope, however fragile, in a world that is dark and dangerous, where life is precarious at best. Hope that winter would give way to the warmth of the sun. Hope that the foods carefully preserved all summer, all fall, and stored will carry the family through the winter months. Hope that the cattle and sheep would give birth in the spring. Hope that the ground would thaw in, this, in time to receive the seed for planting. Hope that children born in spring would be strong and healthy. You see, the church understands something about human nature that far too many today just pay little attention to. God has designed us to have hope and inspires this hope to be expressed in whatever period of history we inhabit and even in religious beliefs and practices created by our fallen minds. The one universal quality of human nature that was not destroyed in the fall was to have and to express hope. We simply cannot live without it. Hope defines what it is to be human. That's why we gather here this morning our supreme hope is expressed not in myths or yule box or reindeers, but in the historical reality that Jesus was born, that our God has become one with us so we can become one with him. Last night, the very first Mass of Christmas, we read from the genealogy according to Matthew's Gospel, although I have to tell you, I didn't read it. I just didn't have the heart to put them through, though, that. But yet the genealogy reveals how God works in the mists of ancient history and our history to bring history to its proper end. And nothing, no one, not even the power of kings or parliaments and congresses, presidents of entire nation, has the power to alter God's plan. Luke's account of the message given to shepherds by angels reveals that he who is infinite chose to embrace the finite, the earthly, that no one is outside his embrace, 
because God has chosen to enter into our history as one of us. John's Gospel reveals that God took on our nature so that our nature could ultimately be transformed so we can become like him. God came among us, not in the power of God, that would have overwhelmed us, but in the scandalous dependency of an infant entrusted to a man and a woman united in marriage and in poverty. Consider how our hope is expressed. Flowers in the dead of winter, wreaths made of evergreen boughs that stay green even though they've been cut off from the tree of life they came from, candles and trees all lit up to defy the darkness, the creche that depicts the wise men, the elites of ancient society, and shepherds, the roughnecks of their time, together adoring a child they had been led to by very different ways. Hope is at the core of the carols we sing this morning and for the next three weeks of the Christmas season. Hope is at the mystery of the Eucharist, that he who is God and came among us as man offers us his body and blood, his soul and divinity. Hope is not centered on the belief that God will keep the chaos of a fallen universe at bay, but rather that he accompanies us through and beyond the chaos to a peace that no one, no thing in this universe can give us. Hope is a type of intuitive knowledge that our God does not want us to be ensnared in the bitterness of past sins and failures, but to open ourselves to his presence here and now, that we are loved and we are accepted not for what we can become, but for what we already are, his sons and daughters. Hope is the comforting assurance that it is utterly impossible for the believer to have a future without God in it. Whatever your Christmas traditions, consider how they might be pointing you to hope, to a hope that shall never disappoint. As my ancestors would say and their descendants still say, good Yule, Merry Christmas.